Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 332, recorded December 21st, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 133. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring voice-activated Sync App Link. Now you can control select smartphone apps with your voice so you keep your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. Check it out in the 2012 Ford Fiesta and at Ford.com slash technology. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that keeps you safe and secure on the Internet. Well, at least tries to as safe and secure as you can be. And, of course, the star of the show, Mr. Steve Gibson, is here, the man who makes Shields Up, Spin Right, and so many other great things uh, come to life. I'm Tom Merritt, filling in for Leo Laporte, who is on holiday break, but he'll be back next week. Welcome, Steve. How's it going, man? Hey, Tom. Great to be with you again. You seem to be... Doing the Q and A's with me every other week. You're you're, you're jumping in. To, yeah, it, ha- uh, it has worked out that way. I'm the December Q and A guy. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I like I like the Q and A's. You get a lot of samples, of lots of different stuff. It's really fun. Uh, we want to start off before we get into uh, the news or the information uh, by thanking our first sponsor for today's show, Netflix. Uh, you can watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on Netflix streaming right to your PC, to your phone, to your tablet, to your game console, actually sometimes straight to your television if it's internet connected with apps. Uh, and we provide it for 30 days for free as a trial. So check it out. Uh, no, no credit card required. No, uh, no, uh, no commitment. Uh, just try it out for 30 days free. Netflix.com slash twit. Actually, I don't know. You might need the, the credit card on this one. I, I get confused sometimes, but go check it out. Netflix.com slash twit is the place. 30 days free. And if you already have Netflix, uh, give it to a friend. Let them let them try it out. The URL works for everybody. Uh, let's start off with our Adobe Watch. What's <laughs> the latest? Well, um, this week, unlike last week, uh, I, I don't know if you were aware, but so much happened um, week before last, that last week's podcast had so much security news that we didn't even try to get any of like our regular, like, you know, tutorial or expl- explanatory or whatever, you know, topical content in. This week, we don't have that much. So we, you know, we've got a, a, a nice Q&A, but not, fortunately, not that much happened. Um, we're, we, Adobe Watch has us keeping our eye on the two zero-day flash vulnerabilities, which surfaced last week. They were, di- they were discovered by a Russian security firm who has demonstrated them, is selling fixes for them to their own customers, but is not disclosing to Adobe what they have found, saying that, well, Adobe's not paying us, so <laughs> we're not telling them. 
So now, this is the opposite of what we usually run into, which is a researcher <laughs> letting everyone in the world know to help make it safe. They're saying, you know what? We're not telling a soul. Well, and there's exactly so. So their their game here is that they're saying, hey, our our clients pay us to protect them and we're protecting them against something that we know about and we can demo it. But we're not going to tell Adobe. So the concern is that the bad guys will be able to reverse engineer the protection, figure out what's wrong and exploit it. And Adobe, who hasn't been informed, won't be able to do anything about it. So we're just sort of in a holding pattern here. We've got, we know that these are in Flash. We know that you can invoke Flash visiting a website or opening a PDF for some bizarre reason. You know, Flash is supported by PDF, both because those are Adobe formats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're just, you know, there's been no news on that horizon. So we're kind of keeping an eye on that. The good news is that... In response to an emergency problem in the versions 9 and 10 of Adobe Reader and Acrobat, as we had been expecting, Adobe did update version 9 of Reader and Acrobat to fix the problems which had been, uh, uh, again, another zero-day problem, which they learned about a few weeks ago. It is contained by their sandbox, which was put into place with version 10. So even though version 10 of Reader and Acrobat also has this problem, I think they're at 10.1.1 at the moment, they're not going to update that in a big hurry because this this exploit can't get out of their sandbox. So this has been an example of the sandboxing technology doing a good thing. We wish... That you know, it didn't have the the vulnerability in the first place, but at least as far as they know, it can't get loose from that. Um, I got a kick out of well, the Sands Institute, the Sands Security Institute. One of their editors, Tom Liston, who is a, a senior security consultant and malware analyst for In Guardians, he's a handler for Sands Institute's uh, Internet Storm Center and also the co-author of the book How, uh, Counter Hack Reloaded. He said. Of all this, he said uh, about the reader and acrobat problem. He says, isn't it about time that we drove a stake through the heart of PDF and started over? This time, let's not include stupid cruft like JavaScript, Flash, and Universal 3D in a, quote, document, unquote, format. Uh, Here, here. So, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy to have... I mean, so many problems have been as a consequence of the PDF document format supporting executable content, which is, of course, Flash, which is interpreted and has had a, a history of problems, and JavaScript, which has all kinds of exploits being made possible. Now, do, and of we, course, do we need to start over, or can we just take that stuff out? I mean, because I know some of the alternate readers are more secure because they just ignore that aspect of PDF. Yeah, and I mean, he's sort of tongue-in-cheek. He knows we're not going to scrap PDF. I mean, PDF is the standard interchange format now for for page formatted documents. It's not going anywhere, but you're absolutely right. One of the things that, that we have often promoted on this podcast is people going in and disabling things like JavaScript and Flash support in in 
acrobat and and reader. There's just there's just no reason to have it. The problem is it's all on by default. What would be really nice is if it was off by default, and then and then in those rare instances where a document actually needs JavaScript or Flash, and I'm, I'm sure there were some you know vertical corporate applications where where there's like within a narrow range it makes sense to have this but most of us are just looking at static pages and you know yet we've got the vulnerability of an interpreter a pdf document interpreter that will do vastly more than we want and you know anyone who's been listening to this podcast for more than a couple years already gets it that you you even if you think those extra features are secure you're you're more secure to turn them off you know it's just the 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 target surface you want to minimize the size of that target surface so having fewer things on always makes you more secure if it's not there it can't be hacked yeah that's why i used to unplug the phone line from my computer i'm like when i wasn't when i didn't need it obviously there's it's like well nobody's going to get into it if if it's off and it's yep, unplugged I, from I, the internet. I mean, in the I remember when Microsoft was bragging about the security level of NT. They were I I don't think I think it was maybe called S three or C three. I think it's C C three was a government spec for security. And they were saying that their new Windows NT, this is when of course it was new, new Windows NT. 3.1 operating system was, you know, C3 secure. And the problem was that one of the requirements of C3 security is that it's sitting in a room all by itself with nothing connected to uh-huh. it. So, so, you know, it never was actually C3, not unless, you know, I mean, not if you had it networked and connected to the Internet, God right. help you. And and so forth. So it's like, well, ah, I don't think that quite qualifies. And I'll be honest, I haven't had Acrobat Reader on a computer in years. I just keep it off. There's there's plenty of other ways to read PDFs. One of them being Chrome. We got a security update uh, for Chrome to talk about. Of course, it does it. Yep. Does it quietly? Well, it yes. Uh, some somewhere you know along the way, Chrome did update itself once again. Uh, Google paid out. total for the respective discoverers of the various flaws which which this latest update fixed. And uh, what what dovetails nicely on that is that Microsoft has seen the light and announced that they too, starting next year, starting in 2012, will be adding automatic background updating to Internet Explorer. Um, they've been actually waging a campaign that we've talked about a couple times on the podcast to try to get people to stop using IE6. And there is some strong corporate support still, I mean, insecure as IE6 is, because then Microsoft began to break compatibility as they went to IE7. And there are, uh, I remember that, that we've had listeners telling us that that they would like to leave IE6 but but they've got huge applications that were written specifically to 
IE6 features, which are not portable to later versions of IE, which is, oh, goodness. I mean, so I guess if you just used IE, if you locked it down and used it only for those things, the, the problem is IE doesn't like to coexist with other versions of IE. So you're almost forced to use a third party, which is actually a good thing, a more secure third party browser for your internet stuff and then just use IE as an application platform when you where you have no choice. Microsoft has said that they will be by default because they I mean their goal is to corral everyone and bring them current to, you know, as they move forward to their later versions of IE. So it will be an opt out automatic update, meaning there will be a means for turning that off for users who specifically don't want it. And if you had ever said no thanks to updates in the past, then this thing won't sneak up on you. It'll it'll stay disabled. But yeah, if you have the rec- automatic updates off now, you won't be forced into this. <clears throat> but Correct. if you have automatic updates on now, this is going to be well, part of them. Is that right? If you if you don't if you didn't decline in the past an up an offered update to IE, then it will now mm-hmm. just not even, it won't be in your face. It won't ask you. It'll be like Chrome is with Google, where it'll just be keeping itself current in a, in a much less obvious fashion. Because, they, you know, I mean, we all know that browsers are the application platforms of tomorrow, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing everything going cloud and distributed. We like the idea of seamless access to, to cloud-based applications on various devices. So, you know, Microsoft's working towards that, that same model. They've said, and I don't quite get what their rollout schedule is. It won't hit us in the U.S. immediately. They said they're going to roll it out in Australia and Brazil first beginning in the beginning of 2012, I guess to sort of see how it goes and, yeah. and sort of beta test it. <laughs> in those it's two an, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting pick, Australia and Brazil, two opposite sides of yeah, maybe the they're globe, doing an alphabetical southern hemisphere. Order. Maybe it's alphabetical order by country name. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's starting is. with A and B. Where's Austria then? Yeah, well, yeah, two. Maybe that's next. I, you know what's interesting about this? I remember when uh, they tried to make updating to the next version of the browser automatic several years ago, and there was a huge outcry because we were we were not accustomed to being pushed and Microsoft forcing you like, don't you dare force me into upgrading. There are all the people like you say who use IE six because it only works with their custom applications and the ie7 wouldn't work uh that way it was this huge outcry but now years later we've gotten used to chrome we've gotten now firefox is is moving towards the same thing uh and we'll talk about that in a second but we we're also accustomed to it that I, I, it's being welcomed more especially because they're doing it in a way that allows you to turn it off uh if and you, if you want to if you if we go even further back in our in our way back time machine Remember that when Microsoft first introduced the whole concept for Windows of automatic updating, people freaked out. Uh I mean, suddenly we we liked the idea of having control. We, we, We just received service packs from time to time to fix a lot of things. And Microsoft began saying... Oh, no, instead of coming to us, we're going to come to you. And, oh, you know, all of the old school gurus just had a had 
fits. Well, so many of those that. updates had broken things in the past that I think we yep. were all burned. And I'll be honest, still to this day on my Windows machines, I let it notify me and then I say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You, you can update. Yes. Well, and there is nothing more annoying than coming, you know, waking up a machine and having everything you were doing gone and, and yeah. then discovering that it updated and rebooted because the updated needed reboots. So you know, Microsoft updates have been applied. Yeah. Microsoft has said that they're going to provide three days notice of intent to reboot your machine to give you time to save things and shut things down I gracefully. Like so yeah. yes, thanks so much. Also, and, if you're uh, on, you, oh, I was going to mention, if you're on XP, you'll only get moved up to Internet Explorer 8, not Internet Explorer 9, I believe. Correct. Because because yep. 9 doesn't work on XP. Correct. And you, you mentioned, and you're right, that Mozilla, now, okay, Mozilla has said they're going to do it too. Now, here's here's what, you know, gets me. Someone, I saw somebody tweet something asking me, Steve, what do you think about version Firefox version 9? And it's like, oh, is that where we are? Okay, good luck with that. I'm still at 3, and I just did receive a notice that there's, I, I have a new version of 3.6 point something is available. But I see now in this announcement of Mozilla's intent, they're planning to add automatic updates, background updates to Firefox version 12 on April 24th of 2012, which says that this other thing that has been annoying people is that Firefox has gone from really slow, painfully slow updates which, frankly, people were liking a lot, that they weren't, it wasn't this crazy update festival all the time. So suddenly now, now we're like, I'm already hearing about nine, eight just happened. Somewhere between now and April 24th, they're going to have to do a 10 and 11 and then a 12. So, I, you know, I, okay. I, I, yeah, I, I think what they did is they just changed the numbers. Instead of point oh or point one, they just <laughs> right. said, "Well, we're just going to call the next one five, and then six, and then seven. We're going to move the decimal point yeah. three places to the right and call them major versions." It's like, oh, well, and, you know. and Firefox right now does a, a sort of an automatic update, but you have to restart the browser. And I guess what's going to happen on April twenty fourth, if I read this right, you won't. It'll work like Chrome, where you just never really know that it's being updated. Yeah, which would be nice. I mean, and it will, it will require some plumbing underneath. But, you know, behind the scenes in order to make that work correctly. So, yeah. All right. Uh, we've been talking about this on a lot on Tech News Today, the Stop Online Piracy Act, uh, ah. H.R. 3261. Of course, the latest is that they haven't passed it out of committee. Thank goodness. Right. Right. Uh, again, I got a kick out of uh, one of the editors of the Sands Institute uh, newsletter, in this case, William Hugh Murray, um, he's an executive consultant and trainer in information assurance and associate professor at the Naval Postgraduate School. And about this, he said, on December 15th, the managers of the bill published amendments intended to respond to the criticism, which the bill immediately received from the industry. He said, the amendment said, in effect, that the remainder of the bill should not be interpreted as written English. What? That it was not intended to do what it does. 
And then he said, drafting legislation is difficult, even when one's intentions are honest. When it is drafted by an interested party bent on disclaiming its interest, it becomes nigh impossible. Well, there was, and there was a great uh, section in, the, in this, in one of these amendments, and I think it's the amendment he's referring to, where it said, uh, nothing in this in this bill should be interpreted to to break the way the domain name system works, and if, and if so, then it should be ignored. I looked at that and said, great. The entire bill can be ignored because everything they're recommending breaks the domain name system. That's exactly right. It, 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 the, the, this, this new replacement starts out, the first clause is that nothing here uh, should be interpreted as, as foreclosing any free speech rights. And the second part is exactly as you said. And if this, if this breaks the DNS system, then we, we didn't mean to do that, so ignore that part. Yeah. And and then they go about explaining how the bill does exactly those two things. Yeah. So crazy. Prior restraint um, and breaking DNSSEC. The the exactly the the problem is, I mean the from my technical standpoint, ignoring the the social and constitutional and you know just sort of the emotional aspect from a from a purely technology standpoint what they're trying to do doesn't work and we have example after example of example of of the fact that it cannot work what they're trying to do is blacklisting and we have a long history of failed attempts at blacklisting on the internet you know famously spammers have have you know, are, are a persistent problem. But, right. We no, none know, of us have any spam anymore because everybody's been blacklisted. Exactly. Wasn't that a great solution? <laughs> you just you just blacklist those those particular pesky pesky scam uh, spammers, and they can't send you spam anymore. Well, we know that doesn't work because all they have to do is change their identity and their location, or their apparent identity and apparent location. And whoa, they're able to send spam again. The point is that the fundamental architecture of the internet is to permit publishing by default. And, you know, any person can get, in the case of domain names, any person can get any not previously registered domain name from any registrar, set up a website anywhere in the world using any ISP that they want, and by default, anybody anywhere can access it if they know its name. So, I mean, it, 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 it was, it's very much like sort of the, the old school way that firewalls were originally created. The first firewalls had all their ports open by default. And then if, if there was like some service that you were running inside your network that you did not want anyone outside to access, you would block that port. So the default was open, and then you made exceptions to close ports. Well, everyone quickly found out that was a bad idea because, because somebody inside the network would fire up some new service and start offering something, and then people outside were able to access it until they were blocked. So now we have firewall technology. I mean, everyone knows you block everything by default 
and then you selectively permit those things that you you know you need. Don't let Congress you know? hear that, Steve. <laughs> well, and see, that's just it. It can work in a in a controlled, constrained environment. There's no way to do this across the internet. There, there, there isn't. And so, and so, my concern about this whole the whole SOPA mess, aside from all of the, you know, other non technical aspects, technically, you can't blacklist. They, they you know. I, uh, we we quoted someone a few weeks ago saying that uh, it was a quote that I really liked. The internet was designed to route around censorship. You know, I mean, it is it is censorship resistant. Yeah. I mean, robustly so. And so, so the the problem would be if we're if we ask ISPs to block the all of these following bad domains, the counterfeiting purse people. We'll simply create some new domains, yeah. you know, different names, and then we'll add those to the blacklist. And then they'll move again to different domains and we'll add those. Before you know it, there will be this massive list of of domain names that needs to be checked. And most of them will be, you know, won't have anything there anymore, but they'll still be in the list. I mean, it's just a, a technical catastrophe. I mean, essentially, these these... The people that are trying to make this happen, the good news is they don't understand the technology, and that's what has stopped them now because a lot of people who do have said, we're moving towards unspoofable DNS with DNS security, DNSSEC, and this breaks DNS security. And suddenly all of the Congress people go, whoa, what, what, what? Well, no, Steve, I heard the the, the head of the MPAA told me, uh, told everyone, that those fears are overblown. Ah. And obviously the head of the MPAA knows more about DNSSEC uh, than the, you know, dozen or so Internet engineers who work on it every day who signed a letter saying the opposite. Yeah, isn't that Christopher Dodd now, by the way? Yeah, it is Christopher Dodd, correct. You know, okay. (laughs) Yeah. And and here's the thing. I don't want to minimize the challenge that the industry faces in trying to uh, protect their intellectual property. There is there is a right to protect copyright. Uh, yep. However, it's being overblown, A, how much of a danger it is and how damaging piracy has been to the economics. And so we're, we, we have this high-pitched rhetoric uh, where I think the industry is feeling like, Okay, we've got this internet full of hackers, both white hat and black hat, and all they do is like to come up with ways around everything we try. You know, we tried to get them with DRM, and we tried to check their IP addresses, and we tried this, and we tried that, and we can't stop them because the internet's full of people who can figure out how to get around stuff. So let's just get them off the internet. And it turns out, you know what, you can't do that because they are people who like to hack around whatever obstacle you throw in their way. You have to come up with a more sociological Situation, a, a, a situation like the music industry has sort of stumbled into, where you say, you know what? Instead of just trying to slam piracy, let's give people a better option where they're willing to pay money. Yep. And yep. It's, it certainly hasn't solved everything for the music industry, but people are paying money for digital music. Something if you had told the music industry this would happen in two thousand one, they would have told you you were crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, am I, I, I keep hearkening back to the conniption that the motion picture industry had with the advent of consumer VCRs. 
they they absolutely tried to prevent the you know VHS and Betamax from ever happening because they they said it would be the end of the movie business. There's well, a great 2020 you know? uh, that's kicking around, I think, on YouTube. Where you, you, I think it's Jack Valenti, maybe uh, talking in exactly the same terms they talk today about the VCR and what it would do to the industry if it was allowed to exist. Didn't happen. No. Yeah. No. All right. Uh, well, we can't move on to a happier. Well, I guess it's sort of happy. Depends on how you look at it. Carrier <laughs> IQ uh, is is it's sort of the story's sort of winding down. Uh, but the carriers are are backing away essentially. Well, yeah. Well, I got. I just. I didn't want. It. We've already covered this through a couple of weeks. I didn't want to spend much time on it, except that um, we had talked and Wired magazine carried an interesting story uh, that I got a kick out of. The headline was "Mobile Carriers Claim Consumer Consent to Carrier IQs Spying." And reading just the first two paragraphs from Wired's article, they said, according to mobile phone care, mobile phone makers and carriers, Americans consented to secretly installed software on 150 million mobile phones that logs what apps they use, what websites they visit and who they communicate with. Sprint, AT&T, HTC and Samsung told Senator Al Franken my friend Thursday of last Thursday that their end that the end user license agreements the EULAs that we're all so fond of reading those pages of fine print you sign when you get a new cell phone authorize them to use carrier IQ software to monitor app deployment battery life phone CPU output and data and cell site connectivity. The company's statements released by Franken are a good roadmap to how the companies will fight federal privacy lawsuits already brought by consumers over the secret software. And th- this this dovetails nicely into, as I was saying to Leo last week, you know, he often reminds people that I'm credited with coining the term spyware mm-hmm. because I found this Oriate spyware on that. my on my machine back in the day i mean this was the, this was this advertising spyware and their defense was that in the you know that the contracts that they made with the freeware carriers of this spyware so that you you downloaded freeware and installed it and along with it came this this spyware and this was it was a way of advertising enabling freeware in order to kick back a percentage to the freeware makers and the the model never worked the whole thing just collapsed but this was installed in tens of millions of people's machines and they told their freeware authors do not remove this when the user removes your freeware because other freeware may have since been installed that also uses it. And so there'll only be one instance of our spyware and all the freeware is able to use it. So there was this amazing hue and cry when it was revealed that there was this spyware technology that had been installed in everyone's machine. I created a little opt-out, what was the name of my of my own little remover to take this stuff out of people's machines and and their defense was that 
exactly like this carrier IQ situation. It was like, whoa, it's in the it's in the fine print, literally in the fine print. And it's like, sorry, that just doesn't keep people from being really upset when they find out that, you know, that this was the way the software is is behaving. Well, and you see the legal arm saying one thing, uh, and at the same time you see Sprint pulling it off of millions of their mobile phones. Uh, so this this is bad news for Carrier IQ, which I, I really honestly believe was not trying to be up to no good. I, no, I, I, I think they, they got caught in a sea change of writing software for a platform in the 90s and having it still working on a platform now in 2012 almost. There's an entirely different set of assumptions about what you're getting into. When I've got a little flip phone that all it does is make calls and send some text messages, that's, that carrier IQ diagnostic software is not nearly as burdensome uh, and dangerous as it is on a smartphone where I've got all my financial information and apps and all my contacts and all of that. Well, and it has evolved. I mean, certainly, you know, if it's monitoring app usage, their argument is that some apps drain batteries. And so they would like to be able to, to, you know, they're not able, the carrier doesn't know all the things that a user has installed. Yet the carrier is who gets called and complained to when the battery only lasts two hours. So, I mean, so defending them, it, it, they have a strong case, I think, to, to make to say, look, we need to be able to know what's running, how much, what percentage of the time it's running, what percentage of the CPU it's using, what percentage of the battery it's draining, and be able to pull that intelligence up on our, on our tech support um, employee screen when someone calls and says their phone's dying after a couple hours. So, so yeah, I mean, I can see the need for that. The, I mean, I don't think there's a, there's not a good solution to this, unfortunately, because, because users are just going to use their phone and no one is ever going to read the fine print and this stuff is just going to be there. So I think ultimately it has to kind of get out into the world that these are, this is what our smartphones do, and you have a choice of not using the smartphone or maybe using one that has this stuff removed or disabled or, you know, maybe there will ultimately be some sort of – it's not on by default, but if you have a problem, then you contact the carrier. They say, okay, look, we're going to turn this on so that we can diagnose the problem, call us back tomorrow, and – and, and we'll see what we've learned. Well, you, you know, know that what? might have been a better way to handle it. That's the way Mark the Spot works in iOS now. Uh, AT&T uses Carrier IQ and Mark the Spot on other platforms, but on iOS it doesn't. What it does is it has you download an app that you launch when you have a problem, and then it captures the state. Uh, now, it's not going to be as comprehensive as Carrier IQ running constantly in the background, but it does pr- give you the control over when I, it grabs everything. Uh, I, I think something like that is really all the Carrier IQ needed to do is you know, give you a, a, an alert when you first buy the phone saying, hey, we want to have the software running, collecting diagnostic information. Click here to find out all the things that it collects. Do you want it to run? If yes, click here. If no, here. And then like you say, if you did click no, you could always choose to turn it back on if you're having problems. Just give me the control over it and let me know what it's doing. Yep. And I'm fine with it. Yep. All right, a couple of miscellaneous things here. What What's this about uh, briefly stalled sales? Yeah, um, I mentioned this to Leo. We um, I went I followed through with switching my SSL certificates uh, throughout the entire site from 
VeriSign over to Digicert. And I am, the experience was spectacular. I am so glad to be with Digicert now. I mean, I'm, I'm saving money. I've, I switched up to EV certs, so I have those. They're able, they, they, they give me protection of my root domain, grc.com, in addition to three other subdomains. So like www is just part of the package. And I'll also be doing media.grc.com for our, our, our media server. And my goal is to move the entire site to SSL always, you know, HTTPS everywhere mode, which is the direction I'm heading. But I also wanted to do it with EV search. The problem was that something bad happened a day or two after we switched. And for example, last Sunday, uh, Sunday, yeah, yeah, um, Sunday a week ago? No, just, yeah, yeah. Sunday a week ago, our sales stalled. I mean, we hadn't had a, a lower number of Spinrite sales like ever. And it's like, what the heck? And so I checked the server. I was trying to see if there was a problem, if, if, if there was like some, we weren't processing financial transactions or whatever. Anyway, what was interesting was that um, uh, a frequent listener to the podcast who goes by Dr. Mom in the chat room, um, whose actual first name is Liz, sent me an email saying, hey, guess what, Steve? Uh, my organization thinks GRC is evil and has blacklisted you and we can't get to your site now. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Well, it turns out that, we, that, that I asked her to track down what was going on. They use an automated software-based technology called the, the, from a company called WebSense and WebSense briefly they they fixed the problem or it fixed itself. I don't know if they if they've got someone who listens to the podcast and heard me, but they noticed that the that the certificate authority that signed our GRC's certificates changed, and of course that is the number one thing that you would expect to see happen. If there was a man in the middle of attack yeah. or a DNS spoofing attack or something that would be taking you to a pseudo GRC site and an over secure connection would, would, would be presenting you with a bogus certificate that would almost by necessity be signed by someone other than the previous certificate signer. So unfortunately, it was a it was a brief a briefly um, and, and brief and short-lived uh, false positive alert because, in fact, for all good reasons, we did have the people signing our security certificates change, and I'm really happy that happened. So, anyway, the problem uh, only persisted for a day or two, and everything's back to normal. So, oh, well, thanks to Dr. Mom. Yeah. By the way, her first name's Lil. She wanted me to, to oh, make, Lil. Yeah, Sorry. Make, make sure. Lillian. Thank you, Lillian. <laughs> Uh, all right, I love this last one here because uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good math joke. But, but Steve, why is it that all these programmers I know always confuse Halloween and Christmas? Well, this is something that always surfaces every season. I see these either in the mailbag or now in my Twitter stream. And, and several people tweeted this. I just thought I would share it with all of our listeners because those who enjoy, as you said, math uh, will get a kick out of it. And this is one of those things that's like, okay, someone clever 
thought of this, and it's, of course, correct. And the reason those two holidays get confused, apparently, in some programmers' minds, is that 25 dec, D-E-C, that is to say decimal, equals 31 oct, which is to say octal. And sure enough, that's the case. Uh, You know, 2 times 10 is 20 plus 5 gives us 25 in decimal. And 3 times 8 plus 1 gives us 25 in In octal. octal. So sure enough. Somebody working in octal one day just (laughs) had that brainstorm. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Halloween is Christmas. Well, and I had a, everything's crazy. A, yep, I got a nice note from a Richard Shepherd, um, uh, dated the seventeenth of this month, and it, it, the subject was Yast Y A S T. Yet another, yet another Spinrite testimonial. It's a little quickie. He said, but this is something I don't think we've ever talked about before. He said, I remotely connected to a client's domain today to take control of a PC there and burn our site-licensed ISO of Spinrite at the client's office that is 72 miles away from me. I walked the client through rebooting to the Spinrite CD and starting Spinrite at level two. And, well, this email exchange is all you need to know. I get all the credit for your great work. And then, actually, he says, I hope your EV search slash spin right sales issue has been resolved. And, indeed, as we know, it has. And then he signed it, big fan, Rick Shepard. So, Rick, thanks very much for sharing your spin right success with me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to get to your questions and Steve's answers. But this episode of Security Now is brought to you by Ford. And one of the great parts of Ford Sync is AppLink, the ability to use applications off your phone right through that whole great sync system that gives you voice recognition. We actually took Sync AppLink out for a test drive recently. Here's what we found. Taking off from the Twit Brick House, and we're going to jump into the 2012 Ford Fiesta to try out Sync AppLink. Now, Sync AppLink lets you use apps like Pandora with simple voice commands so you keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. All right, so we're going to see how Pandora works with Sync. Plug in the phone here by USB. And then we're going to say... Line in. Please say a command. Mobile apps. Mobile apps. Please say a command. Pandora. Now it immediately goes right to the channel that I had, which was a classical music channel. I don't really feel like that right now, so let's change that. Play station Uncle Tupelo Radio. There we go. That's better. All right, let's hit the road. And you can do all kinds of things with voice commands. You can bookmark a song, thumbs up, thumbs down, create a new channel from an artist while it's playing. All those things you probably shouldn't do while you're driving if you're doing them by the app, but you can do them safely by keeping your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. All right, we're here. 
So that's how Ford Sync with AppLink allows you to play Pandora with simple voice commands while you keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. Of course, it's available on the 2012 Ford Fiesta, and you can learn more at Ford.com slash technology. All right, we thank Ford for their support of Security Now. Shall we get into some questions, Mr. Gibson? Absolutely. Uh, this is listener feedback number 133. We'll start off with Bruno Miranda in Portugal, who solved the mystery of his router's login failure. He says, hello, Steve and Tom. Wow. I actually got, got in an email. Uh, I have just won one of those battles against those little things that we wouldn't normally suspect of and almost out of despair call it broken logic. Suddenly one day I discovered that I couldn't log in to my router, a cheap but interesting Vodafone sharing dock. It wasn't recognizing my password. I was surfing the web. Everything else was okay, but I just couldn't log into the router. I rebooted, restarted, reset, powered the router off and back on again, cursed at it, yelled at it, all to no avail. Had I been hacked and my router stolen from me? I even upgraded and downgraded the firmware. Still nothing. After a full factory reset, it wasn't even accepting its default password. Then I tried my tablet. And it was working fine. But the laptop wasn't. And I knew the password. I knew that I knew the password. Was the router broken? So I took a deep breath, multi-booted my Linux machine into Windows, and it was working. It wasn't the laptop's hardware. I returned Linux Mint, installed another web browser, and it was working. Only two chances left, broken router or something in Firefox. I went around Firefox's configurations, and yes... I had changed something some time ago. I had activated the Do Not Track header. After unchecking the box, I typed in my password and shazam! That was it. Of course, there is no fee, no need for or worry about my own router tracking me. This seems to be one of those little broken compatibilities that test our nerves. I wanted to share my interesting adventures with your listeners. Thank you so much for the great show and all the energy both of you put into it. Security Now is listened to on this side of the Atlantic. Now that's really odd, and Why I, is it I did doing want. That? Yeah, um, the only thing that the do not track header does is add a DNT colon space one for do not track. Basically, it's just making an. It's your browser adds that one line to the to what's called the query headers. The 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 list of things that are being sent out when your browser is asking for a page. And normally, essentially, the router looks like a web server. So your browser is, is querying the web server in your router for a page. And it's just, it's bizarre to me that the addition of a header, which it almost certainly wouldn't know about would cause a login failure. I mean, the the only behavior of turning Firefox's do not track header on should be to add that to the queries. It shouldn't prevent, for example, cookies. Now, the only thing I can think is that there's some interaction or or maybe something else in his browser was seeing the do not track header and was, for example, doing something with cookies because I could imagine that if you were blocking cookies, that could cause a login problem. But I just can't see that the do not tra track header by itself could. But I thought I would share this just in case anybody else 
had a router that was acting in the same way, you know, turning on do not track is something that mm. we, we would be promoting for people. So if it's causing a side effect in some bizarre cases, that's certainly worth knowing. Darcy K. Gift in the chat room speculates maybe the router was using that code for something and the router's, you know, had been created before do not track was implemented. It's the only thing I can yeah. imagine, but, but except that, well, I mean, or, or maybe you know, a bug in the router's web server, essentially the router wouldn't be able to induce your browser to generate a DNT header. Um, and if it, if it's named, if it was naming a cookie DNT, uh-huh. then the header would actually be cookie colon DNT equals. So that would be semantically parsed differently than DNT colon and then a and then a one. You know, or, Ch- or Chetpot is- has an interesting speculation. What if the admin CGI script is being taken from an array and the added header changes the array stack? Mm, again, you'd, you'd I, I, it would be. I, I mean, I again, that's, that's another possibility. It's intriguing, yeah, but. But requiring that a browser have exactly a certain set of headers, that's that's a problem too. In yeah, fact, yeah. one of the ways that browsers can be identified is the sequence of the headers that they generate because different families of browsers emit their query headers in a different order. And so I, I remember at one point, I think it was when I was working on the um, the – uh, browser identification for our, the CSS script-free menuing system on GRC, I was looking at, you know, how can I determine which browser is which? And, you know, I, without scripting, you, you can't really take advantage of, of header sequence. But I do, I do remember noting that one of the things that some servers were doing is looking at, at the sequence of headers as a, as a means of disambiguating browser families. So, yeah. you know, again, that's, Hard to see that would be the cause, but still something certainly kind of freaky. Yeah. All right. Question number two from Notre Poubelle in Vancouver, Canada, asking about an iOS battery management app. He says, I've seen an app called Battery Boost Magic in the iOS app store. Could an application actually help battery life? Wouldn't this be managed by the OS? I could see how an application that uses heavy resources could kill battery life, but to improve it? I've seen lots of reviews on the web, and they're generally extremely positive, but I can't see how this thing would work. Assuming it does work, is there any possible negative long-term effects to using something like this? So I took a look at what the app was because I completely agreed with his assumptions about what limitations an app running an iOS would have. And looking carefully at what their claims were, I'd have to come to the conclusion that their claims were a little overblown. They were hyping what this thing was able to do more than their technology would warrant. What it appears that it does have that, that to, to offer, which iOS doesn't, is very sensitive measuring of the amount of, of current that is being drawn and, or the uh, uh, high-resolution look at the current charge state of the phone. And so over time... By looking at that, the app would be able to see the rate at which the phone was draining because the features which which seemed strongest that this thing was offering 
was a projection of how much time you had left on the battery when you were doing different things. So this app was running is monitor is 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 passively looking at the rate at which the battery is discharging based on a much higher resolution readout of the amount of charge in the battery and then it's able to do probably a straight line prediction of when the battery will hit zero essentially and tell you oh you've got seven hours using this app and two hours using this app and and so forth so it's it does look to me like it's stretching what it's able to do essentially it's a it's a sophisticated battery meter and mm. really doesn't look like it's many, anything more than that and right. they've been clever with what they're doing with it but mm. they are sort of overselling it battery meter slash placebo effect <laughs> what it sounds yes. like to me uh, all right. Ranget in Syria wonders about remote attacks on home computers. Uh, I like your podcast a lot, and I'm a weekly listener for almost a year. Damn, I wish I knew of your podcast earlier. Anyway, thanks for the amazing podcast. As for my question, let's say a hacker got a hold of your IP address and your home network is behind a hardware firewall, a router. What can he do in order to hack the network? Are we safe behind our routers? Or are hackers able to gain access remotely to our network by probing the firewall with some of their gadgets? And what can we do in order to protect against such attacks? So, yeah, how do, how do we harden our own firewalls? Yeah, um, you know, this is, when I encountered this, I thought, well, this is sort of a basic question, mm-hmm. but basic is also good because some things have been changing in our computers in the last few years that are worth noting. The other day, I was setting up a new machine and was curious what exceptions had been made through the Windows, This I was setting up a Windows machine, and was curious what, what exceptions had been made through the Windows firewall. And I was disturbed to see how many different apps and services had registered themselves to receive incoming traffic through the firewall. Meaning they were opening ports through the, fire, through the, through the software firewall in Windows to make themselves available for, for incoming traffic. Now that's different than opening ports out in the fi- in uh, in the hardware firewall, the router, as 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 he mentions. Except that Universal Plug and Play UPnP uh, explicitly allows this. That is, it is designed. The reason it was created was that that consumers were installing routers for their security and for the, for the for the features that they afforded but that was blocking software features from being able to receive incoming traffic so universal plug and play was created as a means to allow machines inside the network to talk to the router which would be advertising its UPnP services and selectively open ports through the router essentially violating its security you know, we've Leo and I have often through the years um, suggested to people that if you do not need, you don't know you need universal plug and play, then you really want to disable that in the router. A place, for example, where you do need it is is by default Xbox wants to open a bunch of ports. Now, what you can do is 
disable universal plug-and-play, and then manually open those ports yourself so that you retain control over what your router's doing and have those ports sent only to the Xbox. If you have universal plug-and-play enabled, any machine in your network can open ports through your router. And when I look at the number of of openings in the typical Windows firewall now, you know, it's a lot less secure than we wish it was. All right, on to question number four. Jamie Hunt in Derby, England, wonders whether Steve is an open-source publisher without knowing it. Uh, He says, hey, Steve, I might be missing something here, and I'd love to know if I am. But aren't all of your tools, which you write in assembly language, inherently open-source since they can be relatively easily disassembled. Take, for example, your DNS benchmarking tool. If I download a copy of this, I can open this with my favorite disassembler, PE Explorer, and within seconds, I am looking at all of your source code just as you wrote it. If you wrote these tools in C++, then I wouldn't have your C++ source code. I would have the compiled assembly language produced from the source code, so they remain relatively closed source. But since your tools are written in assembly language, the code is the same, right? I have a feeling that I'm missing something, but I can't see where. Well, it's funny because there's been – I sort of ch- smiled and chuckled when I saw this because a a topic that comes up every so often in GRC's news groups is people saying, hey, why don't you release the source of these freeware that you create? Because after all, it's free. It's free, right. Yeah. So, you know, why not let us see your – you know, mojo and magic and, and how you're doing this. Make it and speech of course, and beer. <laughs> exactly. And and then if I don't respond immediately to that posting, you know, if I don't get around to it, somebody will weigh in and say, well, you know, Steve writes everything in assembly language, so just disassemble the executable if you want the source code. Now, the fact is, if anyone has seen my source code, they'll know, and I, I have... Sometimes I'll I'll settle the argument by by posting a screenshot from my editor showing what mine looks like because mine is you know heavily indented, heavily commented, you know beautiful variable names that that are long and descriptive. I Meaning it almost reads like English. I also use all of the the, the Microsoft Masm conditional um, con- conditional. Um, flow tools, you know, if, then, else, while, do, all of those map down into single instructions. So I'm really writing, I'm I'm writing assembly language, but it's really pretty and much easier to read than, than the, the stuff you often see posted on like random hacker sites where it's just a string of opcodes running down the left-hand margin of the page. That is what you get if you disassemble my code, is a string of opcodes running down the left-hand margin of the page. And you don't get nice variable names, which are, you know, multi-word and descriptive when I create them. All you get is an, is an address of something. So you get, and of course, you get no comments. Those are all stripped out as, as part of the assembly process as well. So it is you know, there's, there's, a, there's a big difference between what I produce and what you get if you disassemble the post-assembly code. But to answer the question, which actually Jamie didn't ask, but I'll answer because it's the one that is posed so often in the news groups. The reason I don't offer my source is it would make it extremely easy for someone to clone my apps and then post them on the Internet 
and have them masquerading as mine. And it's not that I would mind if they identically cloned them because, you know, that's the same as just rehosting my exes. But they could e they could also make them evil. They could have the DNS benchmark doing something behind your back that you don't know. It would be it would look like a really tasty tool, even if they didn't say it was from me. If it was a you know this really nice benchmarking tool, lots of people would want to use it. But if they made it also evil at the same time, then they would be suckering people into using something that they didn't know was being bad for them. And, of course, there's lots of other things that do that already. I just don't want to contribute to it. And I don't see any benefit to me in releasing it as open source. You know, I like the, the fact that my stuff is sort of uniquely small and special, and you come to grc.com if you want to get it. It's open, ugly source is what you're saying. <laughs> All right. right. Question number five. Sammy Lettinen, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, from Helsinki, Finland, makes a great observation about dangerous, leaky hardware firewalls. He says, I wanted to warn people about potential problems with regular home routers, such as the more expensive and fancy firewall routers that are very configurable. That configurability can backfire nastily. This kind of plays into what we were talking about earlier. While yes. the router is booting, it's quite long process. Parts of the system start with default configuration like the switch portion. This causes all LAN, WAN, and DMZ ports to be completely bridged for about one minute. After that, normal NAT, SPI, DHCP, etc. function returns. As far as I can tell, that's a very serious security issue. 60 seconds is more than enough for automated attacks to get through, even if somebody would claim it's just a short moment. And this is not just one case. I have noticed similar functionality in other products like this earlier from the same manufacturer. I assume the basic system they're using is flawed. It shouldn't start networking before everything else is ready. It's very easy to notice this functionality when configuring the firewall because if you run IP config renew slash renew after reboot, it's trivial to get a public IP from the ISP's DHCP pool and use the internet for about one minute. After that one minute, the network stops working until you again renew the lease, and then you'll get the IP address from the local LAN DHCP pool as expected. Well, this is a fantastic observation, and I'm not at all surprised this is going on, but it's something that had never occurred to me before. Many of the, the fancier higher-end routers are based on Linux, and they've got a a fundamental networking architecture which is supported at the low-level OS level, but then they layer on many more features which run as independent processes and, for example, hook into the, the network in order to add filtering and, um, and um, NAT routing functionality and so forth. But without those things running... But that is before they hook into the network layer, you have a generic bridging router with none of the security features enabled. So this is a very real problem. Um, what I mean, the takeaway from this actually is to what I would do is and I'm probably going to do it from now on. I don't reboot my router very often. But I would disconnect my LAN side connection for a couple minutes until the router comes up and it settles down. And then 
then bring my local network up inside. Uh, what he was saying, just to clarify, and this is one way to test this, he was saying that shortly after rebooting the router, if he then, he he was using a, the Windows command, IP config space slash renew, which tells Windows to go send out an, a, a, a query for its auto configuration um, you know, the DHCP, Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, send out a query to get an IP. What he discovered was that if you do this shortly after the router comes up, you are actually connected directly out to the public Internet. And traffic is flowing both ways. You have a simple, non, non-natted bridge to your network. So you send out a DHCP query, it goes to your ISP, not to your router, which means you will get back a public routable IP, the one that would normally be acquired by your own router, you would obtain that, and your system would be on the Internet during that time. Eventually, the router's own DHCP server comes up, and its interception technology, NAT and so forth, comes up, stateful packet inspection and, and all that, then you get normal routing functions. But what he observed, and this doesn't surprise me, but it's certainly something to be aware of, is that with a router which is actually probably Linux-based OS, it's going to take a while to get itself going. We know that these are not fast processors. They're little cheesy, you know, I mean, they're they're slow, barely enough to handle the um, the normal traffic that you have through the router, and they're they're cutting costs every way they can. So so minimizing the complexity and the speed of the processors is one of the things that they do. So that that what that means is that it's fine once it gets going, but it really takes it a while to come up and get going. And during that time, you could actually have zero protection. I think that's really interesting. So you could also just keep all your computers unconnected to the router during setup. But it seems simpler to just pull that, that connection to the Internet out because then you can make sure that your computers are getting assigned and, and everything on. Well, yes. Um, the problem with that, I mean, yes, that's the you have one connection to pull if – if you pull the WAN side, mm-hmm. the problem then is that your router won't have been able to obtain when it booted a public IP. And so you'd have to give it a kick or wait for it to go ask again or do something. Um, uh, what, what I was wondering was whether you could run shields up during that time. But the problem is you would... You would you if you got a public IP, you'd you have to have an IP in order to run Shields up. If you get a public IP anyway, then you know you've got a problem. So I mean, you, you know that you've got no protection from the internet during that window. Now this makes me glad that all of our personal computers now have their own software firewalls, also because you know that's going to give you some protection. But boy. This does say that you don't want to absolutely depend upon the, 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 the software firewall in your machine. I'm sorry. You don't want to depend upon the hardware firewall mm-hmm. offered by the router because it's transient. It's not present for 
you know, a while when you're restarting your router. So what you what's safest, although it's not just a single plug, if you've got a router that also is a switch, you'd have to like, you know, pull all of the connections from it while it comes back up, wait for it to settle down, and then, you know, plug things back in again. But Wow, that's really a great observation. Yeah. Question number six from David in Chicago. Uh, he, he needs to know how to disable Windows safe boot mode, and he's got a funny reason <laughs> why. Uh, he says, my kid gets around the Windows parenting filter that I put in place by booting into safe mode. Do you know a way to disable that? This goes to what we were talking about earlier. Whenever you make a blacklist, people find a way around it. Is there a way Eggs. to turn off safe mode, though? It wasn't that it is. First of all, I got a big kick out of the question. And, you know, it's probably probably behind the scenes uh, at his kid's school. They're all talking to each other and they have figured out this is the way you get around, you know, what mom and dad have done to the computer is you boot into Windows safe mode. Um, so I poked around to see whether there was a way around it. Um, some crazy guy is suggesting that you can hex edit the uh, ntloader.sys file. Wow. <laughs> it's just That's a, core, a core component of Windows. Do not do that. Yeah. Uh, you really don't. It's version dependent, and it's, it's you know, search for a certain pattern, and it's like, oh, goodness. I mean, now the, all these components are signed. That would break the signature for the signed, uh, you know, the signed driver file. So, you know, you don't want to do that. I did find somebody who is selling something. Um, if you Google no, just the phrase with no spaces, no safe mode, N-O-S-A-F-E-M-O-D-E. If you Google that, the first hit that Google brings up is is a page ending in that.html. And that appears to be a respectable piece of software which you can install, which will specifically for this purpose, disable Windows safe boot mode. It is available, I think, with a 30-day trial. So you could try it, see if it does what you want, and then then buy it if it works. So I did find that, but I just got a kick out of the question and wanted to share it with our listeners and offer that little, although I can't vouch for the app at all because I have not tried it, um, it looks like it's reputable and would do the trick. Now, a bunch of people in the chat room are suggesting putting a password on the BIOS. That way he can't reboot without knowing the BIOS password. Uh, that's good. So he would have to have his parent then enter that and then supervise the, you know, escorting into Windows normally. That may not work with the way, you know, his family is structured. Yeah, is. You know, you know, Junior coming home in the afternoons and wanting to use the computer before before mom and dad are home and so forth. So Depends. That's true. Very kid, clever. Kid's going to get a, a boot disc of some sort anyway. It's, it's going to be an arms <laughs> race. <laughs> That's what I think. Uh, Jim Heislop in Toronto remembers that Lucille Ball explained bandwidth. He says, I have an analogy to share and a question to ask. Listening to the most recent Q&A, it occurred to me that a better analogy for bandwidth is a conveyor belt. You put your packets on the conveyor belt and they get whisked off to their destination. 
the conveyor belt moves at a constant speed. So the limitation is not how fast the data moves, but rather how much data you can put on the conveyor belt at any given moment. If you have a lot of people trying to put data on the conveyor belt at the same time, some of it has to wait until there is room. The classic I Love Lucy chocolate factory sketch is a perfect illustration of not only bandwidth, but also how routers can drop packets when they get too busy because she drops chocolate all over the floor. Secondly, I want to cover an extension of one of the listeners' questions about how to get people to understand security. Your virtual to physical security analogy is great, but I sometimes run into people whose attitude is, why would anybody want to break into my computer slash website slash whatever? Do you have any suggestions on what to say to those people? Okay, so first of all, if I assume that our listenership has seen that episode. I mean, it is one of the classic... Go seek it out if you have it. You can find it online. Actually, I Love Lucy is pretty easy to find legally online. Um, Yes, it is a a spectacular uh, piece of comedy. And, but mostly, his analogy is great. I love the analogy of a conveyor belt. Because it gets, you know, we all like to have visual aids. And for our listeners who are trying to explain stuff to other people... This is perfect because the idea being that packets are like blocks, essentially. And this conveyor belt is moving along this imaginary conveyor belt at a certain rate. And so the, so the idea is that that is the shared broadband that all of the subscribers on a leg of the ISP's network share. And so... The, the idea being that that the you, you're given a you're given a percentage of the conveyor belt's capacity, and you put packets on along with everybody else putting their packets on. Some people get a bigger percentage, some people get a lesser percentage, but the actual rate at which the individual packet moves is shared by all users and the same what differs is how often you're able to put your packet onto the conveyor belt sharing the space with everybody else so i love the analogy a lot um now is the uh is if if i have this right is the speed of light the conveyor belt speed um actually no because that would be the case if we were actually if we weren't modulating, we're okay. actually yeah, we're, we're modulating the data onto a carrier, and so it's substantially slower than that. The, the carrier speed is a speed of light, but the data carried by the carrier being modulated is a lot slower. All uh, right. Let's... Anyway, great analogy. And to, 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 and part two. Oh right, was, right. The, the virtual to physical security. Why yeah. would anyone want to hack into my website, Steve? Yes, and that is. That is a a great question, and it is the defense that people who want to be lazy about their own security use is nobody cares about me. The question is, I would, I think, the, 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 again, trying to relate this to people who are resistant, ask them if they think viruses care who they are. Viruses don't. Viruses are agnostic to who you are. They just want to infect everybody they can. Email spam carrying infected links don't care who you are. They want to, these bad guys want to get their malware into everybody's machine. They don't care 
who you are. They would like to set up a, a, a bot Trojan in your machine and use it to attack others. They would like to install Zeus into your machine and as Zeus being the the very successful, distressingly successful banking Trojan, in which case they don't care who you are as long as you've got money in your bank account, which they would be happy to help help you drain. So, you know, you get Zeus installed in your machine, you're anonymous to them, but this thing watches you log into your Bank of America website, presents you with a fake page showing the balance you expect while behind the scenes it sends your money off to Russia. So absolutely, just in the same way that viruses don't care, none of this stuff cares who you are. It's just happy to have your money. Yeah. Uh, the the answer the, the short answer is the reason they care about whatever it is you've got is because you have processing power and a connection to the Internet. And they could use that to take all kinds of stuff from you and, and other people without your knowledge. You, you may have a bank account, yeah, and they, and they'd be happy to help you empty that. Question number eight from Mark Wansel in Royal Oak, Michigan, uh, points us to a very cool animated captcha. Uh, he I, he says I hadn't seen this before, but maybe you had an animated captcha. I wonder if this defeats some of the image recognition software like Google Goggles uh, for now. And there's a, an example at MPE Support Group dot com. Uh, so it, it's essentially it's the normal looking captcha. But it ripples. It's like an animated GIF. It's very clever. And I wanted to share this with our listeners. We've talked about CAPTCHAs at length. So it's it's the contact form at, as you said, Tom, mpesupportgroup.com slash contact hyphen us dot HTML. And I commend it to our listeners to take a look at it. Essentially, it uses the fact that our brain is able to integrate an image over time so that if we watch this thing rippling, it, we, we can read it, but it's because we're seeing it stretched out over time that, that there's a numeral, actually, I guess it's going to be different for everybody. So the one that I saw will not be what everybody sees, obviously. But in the one I saw, there was a, a, a numeric digit on the end that happened to be a, a digit five. And it was actually sort of sliding under a fold in this, in this ripply fabric sort of animation so that, you know, you could see that it was a five. But the point is that, that it would take some extreme intelligence on the part of software First of all, to realize this is a multi-image, probably a, a, a GIF, an animated GIF image, and then to, to, to look at every separate frame, with none of, no, no single frame contains the CAPTCHA. It's only over time that your brain reassembles this into what this waving flag, sort of a printed waving flag is. Anyway, it's very clever and something I had never seen before that I wanted to share with our listeners. So thank you, Mark, for, for pointing it out to us. Yeah, and uh, Burke, are you able to get my screen? or because or, or I, Oh, I'd like, I, never mind. But yeah, you, it doesn't look, I, I didn't have a, no, a number in mind, Steve. It was just RWWU, okay. uh, but you could never have captured any single frame and seen all of the letters. That's the key. Exactly. It's, it's that rippling, that folding that you're talking about. Uh, so a machine is not going to ever see 
all of it, unless it was smart enough to be able to integrate the way our our minds do. Uh, but that's a much taller order. Yeah, and it's not just like like sort of revealing something static over time because right. that would be easy to sort of programmatically fix it th- these things are f- sliding under ripples and and under folds and i think it's very clever i don't know where it came from but uh i'm sure looking at the page source you could probably figure out where they were getting their capture technology because it, to me look this looks like it would slow things down for, for probably for quite a while all right, just three more, nine, no, no, my math's wrong, four more, nine, question number nine from Robin Las Cruces, uh, wondering about Spinrite and hard drive cloning. I manage a help desk where we see our share of failed hard drives. Most data is backed up, so I'm usually not too concerned with bringing a dead hard drive back to life. But the other day, a user came to us because her laptop would no longer boot. We didn't have a spare laptop drive on hand, so I had my tech run Spinrite so that hopefully she could keep working until we could get another drive and restage her laptop. Spinrite worked like a charm, and she was able to work the rest of the day without a problem. Spinrite, as it always does, came through in a pinch. But I have a question. We received a replacement drive and took out her bad drive, which Spinrite had been keeping alive, and reinstalled her operating system programs, etc. But would it be okay to use a program like Clonezilla to clone the dying hard drive. That would save time, and the end user would still have their customizations that take the user so much time to reset. Would this work, or do we run the risk of copying errors into the cloned image? Um, Interesting question. And uh, I get people from time to time asking questions about that are sort of spin-right related, and I'd say, oh, I sort of don't want to, like, you know, turn this whole thing into a big commercial for spin-right. Certainly our listeners are well aware of Spinrite, but um, I've seen questions like this before. Um, one of the we, we got a burst of Spinrite sales back when Microsoft was offering the converter from when from from the FAT16 to the FAT32 file system. Um, I don't even remember what that thing was called now, but it was when they were moving people to Win98, I think from Win95 and drives were getting bigger so they needed to expand the file system size but they wanted but people were wanting to to convert in place their file system from 16 to 32 bits and the point was that any single error anywhere on the drive failed that process and so what what uh, people realized was running spinrite first would fix the fat 16 file system and then the the converter which would previously have failed was enabled to, to to succeed well the same is true with drive cloning because typically the cloning software i mean it's not spin right it's just doing a, a simple sector copy from one drive to another anything that causes it to glitch will cause it to fail so one of the reasons people today still purchase Spinrite is they're trying to to back up a drive that won't back up because the image software will will say, you know, there's an error on your drive, Spinrite will fix that, and then you're able to perform your copy. So the answer to Rob is yes, um, running something like Spinrite, well, or, or Spinrite, <laughs> actually there is nothing else like Spinrite, so running Spinrite first to fix the drive's errors will then allow a drive cloning or copying system which was previously failing to succeed. 
All right. Good to know. Steve Fintel in Houston, Texas, wonders about an HTML5 security analysis. He says, hi, Steve. I've been an avid listener of Security Now since episode one and followed your Tech Talk column before that. I recently attended a security conference where one of the speakers talked about methods to attack HTML5. Many of the conference attendees started getting upset and the obvious step backwards HTML5 represented from a security perspective. I'd love to hear you dedicate a Security Now episode to this topic. We don't have time for a whole episode right now, but uh, what do you think? Well, we don't, um, but we certainly will be talking about it at least in piecemeal. Um, it's it would be hard to do an episode be, like preemptively because what I can tell you is if we're going to have problems, we've already had problems with HTML5. For example, there's something in an in HTML5 called offline web applications, which is an explicit caching technology that allows sites to cache their web pages statically in your machine. The problem with that, which has already been exploited, is that if you briefly go to an insecure location like like Starbucks open Wi-Fi and 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 get some malicious JavaScript in your machine, whereas it would only have been able to live in a transient form on the web pages previously by leveraging this 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 explicit application caching there is already malicious javascript which is able to set up shop in your computer thanks to html5 well you're essentially so, installing a program now when you do that and, exactly. and, and so you're open to all the same risks Exactly. So so there's an instance where it's a feature of HTML5 being repurposed. And I know that we're going to see, as we always do, clever hackers come up with ways of abusing things which are extensions of our browser's capability, a la HTML5, creating problems that we didn't have before. The second class of problems will be your classic coding errors, and they already exist. There have, for example, HTML5 brings a much advanced rendering to us. There's a there's a, a canvas metaphor into which you're able to draw with vectors or pixels in order to perform on the sort of on the fly local graphics rendering, which we have never had before. Now we have it. And there's mistakes in the code. So there have already been exploits, for example, taking advantage of buffer overflow mistakes in the, in the screen canvas rendering technology in some browsers in order to run code that was, you know, run, run code rather than graphics in your browser. So generically, I can say HTML5 is going to keep our podcast busy. <laughs> yeah, and when it's not a, it's not accepted yet, and that's a good thing because it gives us a chance to look at this kind of stuff and and you still have a chance to to address it. Yeah, I would say that browsers are rapidly moving towards it, but we're not rapidly using it. There isn't, you know, it's it'll have a slow uptake because of course websites can't use it 
robustly until all the browsers support it uniformly. And we're still, you know, the browsers are f- rapidly moving in that direction. And there are some cool things. I mean, there are also some disturbing things like there is persistent data storage, which is explicitly available in HTML5 or a la HTML5 that we've never had before. It's like mega cookies. It's another place mm-hmm. for for identification stuff to be stored in your browser. So we're going to have to have some control over that. Yeah. With great progress comes great responsibility, I guess. <laughs> yes. Question number 11. Craig in Tyler, Texas, wonders about lithium-ion battery inconsistencies. I don't want to beat a dead horse topic, but something's been bugging me about the recommendations for lithium-ion battery management. Everything you've said on Security Now about the topic makes perfect sense, and it even helps to explain why my laptop occasionally seems to be charging my battery, even though I never use it with AC power. My confusion, however, comes from my cell phone. I have a Samsung Continuum, which was made within the last year or so, and the manual for the phone quite specifically mentions unplugging the charger when the battery reaches 100%. The phone itself even beeps and pops up a message saying, battery fully charged, unplug charger. If all that you have taught us about lithium-ion battery management is correct, then why do some manufacturers still lead us, the consumers, to believe that these batteries can be overcharged or that we should be draining them all the time? It's a great question, and I loved it because it highlights a distinction that I have made before, but I clearly need to make more clear. And that is, there is a, an absolute separation or, or difference between the, the chemistry and the technology of lithium-ion battery function and the management of that, that chemistry. And so... So, and I've, I, I, I'm aware of it, and I'm careful when I'm talking on the podcast to make sure I use the right words, but it would be very easy for someone who, who didn't recognize the importance of the distinction to miss it. And so, so the idea, for example, is that we've talked about lithium-ion batteries not being trickle-charged. That is, some battery technologies, like famously... Um, good old lead acid batteries. You're able to you're able to trickle charge. You f- you're able to after they come up to a full charge, you drop the current to them and just feed it in at a very slow trickle, to, which has the effect of keeping lead acid, old like car batteries, fully topped off. That kills lithium ion batteries. They do not the chemistry the actual. The, the actual electrochemistry does not be, behave well if it's trickle charge. You will damage it. So the proper way to charge a lithium-ion battery is to charge it to a terminal voltage and then stop all charging. Now, there's no reason that, that Samsung hasn't done that except that they chose not to. You know, they're... Manual says unplug it when it's fully charged. Um, the phone says unplug me, unplug me. Now, you know, here's Apple uh, and all other laptop makers. They don't have any problem with stopping charging when their battery's full. I don't know why Samsung has a problem, but they've chosen to. So it's not that their lithium-ion batteries are different from anybody else's. It's that 
for whatever reason, they've chosen to manage the same electrochemic the, the, the same electrochemistry differently than others. Maybe there's some advantage to them doing this that isn't apparent. I can't really see what it would be, but they've sort of get, they've they've transferred some of the responsibility of proper battery management from their own hardware and firmware over to their users. Well, they it read seems- all these great stories about crowdsourcing, Steve, and they said, well, we'll just crowdsource battery management. The problem is they don't have a crowd. There's only one person yeah. using the phone. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so the distinction is, you know, they, I, I'm, I, I've tried to be careful about assigning the responsibility in the proper place, but I, I would say that, you know, Craig, the, the upshot of this is, absolutely definitely do what the manual tells you and there but the management aspects are different from the electrochemical aspects which are pretty much absolute now is that why sometimes uh my computer will say you're fully charged we're not charging your battery but it'll still say 98 percent because it's it's just saying look you know we're not we're not going to keep charging this thing it's dangerous um, yeah, actually, and 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 there is a there is a good reason, a rationale for that. A a you know the term battery, like a like a battery of cannons in old you know Civil War era, is a bunch of cannons. A battery is a bunch of cells, and the cells are series connected, and it is crucial that you never overcharge a cell in the line. Of batteries, so what happens is if the cell's charge is desynchronized, that is, if some cells have a have a few millivolts lower charge than others, as the battery as a whole is being charged up, the as it, the second that any one of the cells in the series connected pack reaches its maximum charge. The, all the charging has to stop, and so it's and so so, so that that's the reason that di, that sometimes so-called conditioning can be useful, where you deliberately discharge the battery pack all the way down to zero and then recharge it, because what that does is it allows those cells with lar- with a greater charge to to discharge. And, and sort of re-zero themselves. And then when you charge it back up, they all come up at the same time. It can also be the, fa- the, the case that the cells were not well matched by the factory and that you're always going to have some that are a little bit weaker. And so through charging and discharging, charging and discharging, they will tend to sort of lag behind the pack, so to speak. And, and exactly as you say, it's fully charged, but that only gives you, you know, something less than 100% of full charge. It's because of intercell variations. All right, let's finish up with question 12 from Paul Brogger in Tonino, Washington, bringing news of the resurrected HP 15C. Uh, He says, have you heard that HP has released the HP 15C in a limited edition model? The original batch sold out instantly. It's out of stock right now, but more to come. I tweeted this, and I wanted to thank Paul for bringing it to my attention. Uh, I've often talked about those. They're they're a family of calculators, which are 
30 years old, I think. Well, maybe not 30, maybe 20, but long since discontinued, except for the 12C. For some reason, the financial version has stayed in continuous availability over time. But my favorite one was the 11C, which was iterated to the 15C. It's a landscape orientation calculator rather than sort of the more traditional portrait orientation. I just love my 11C. And I mean, it's, it's sitting right next to me. I've got them in various of them in various places in the house. So I'd always have one near me depending on where I'm working. And so I, I tweeted the news and want to let our listeners know um, that for anyone who's interested, if you just put in uh, HP space 15C in a Google, uh, you can find HP's uh, website. It's $99. For this limited edition HP 15C, it is, in my opinion, the best calculator ever made. It is just, I mean, you, it is RPN and RPN only. So you got to be a reverse Polish notation person. Uh, but I'm dyed in the wool that way. Ever since I was in high school, I spent my the $400 that I saved up from a summer job uh, to buy myself uh, the HP... 41 mm. was the very first scientific calculator that H. Hewlett Packard produced. So, love those machines. You know, I uh, I'm still partial to the uh, uh, to the TI 35. Yep, but you, another classic. Not as programmable, actually, not programmable. Had a memory though. All right, but that that's the end of our question, Steve. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And uh, next week, as our listeners know. We will. Uh, I'll have Leo back, and we're going to do a special science fiction episode for the holidays. Uh, we may cover a little bit of security news if anything fantastic happens, but mostly we're going to talk about sci-fi, movies, TVs, and books. I can't wait. You know, I do a sci-fi podcast with uh, Veronica Belmont, uh, so I, I, I'm definitely tuning in for this. I can't wait to hear what you guys talk about. It's gonna, I, I always get good recommendations from you when you talk about sci-fi and stuff. Cool. Thanks, Tom. All right, that's it. Don't forget, Steve Gibson, you can find his work at, uh, at grc.com. Uh, all kinds of good stuff there, like Spin Right, like Shields Up, uh, like Haystacks. Look that up. You're going to love it. I uh, appreciate you watching Security Now. Leo will be back next week, like Steve said. I'll see you later. Thanks, Tom. Security Now.